We are church. Uh, for people who don't typically like church, at least we try to do that. Um, and uh, we uh, <clears throat> are just a bunch of people trying to figure out what it means to live in the way and the teaching of Jesus and what that means in, for us in 2020. And we teach a series here, and we're in part three of a series um, called uh, Greener Pastures. Uh, it's a, a series on uh, divorce, breakups, and why a mom was right about him or her. Uh, and it is part three, so there's a couple parts that you may have missed if you, if you haven't been in part for the last two weeks. So there's a website you can always go to, eastlaketricities.com. <clears throat> slash talks. If I am talking too fast through some recap stuff, or if I say something that's confusing, you want to re-listen to it and see what I said was wrong, or if I say something that uh, it makes it makes you laugh or whatever, then then there's a, a spot for that too. But it's been a series on hope, really. Um, and the reason I picked uh, the idea of divorce, breakups, and and um, why over and overbearing moms is because in those situations, more than really uh, any, um, or, or those are fertile grounds for this idea of a lack of of hope. And I don't know if you've ever experienced like hopeless, tangible hopelessness. Here's what I don't mean with this. This is not a series where you have what I call live options still. Um, live options being like, hey, this sucks, but like, I think I'm going to get through this. Like, I know what I kind of need to do, or I know that uh, I'm not like, I, I'm not, I'm not completely lost. I've got some things. I, I'm, I'm going to take steps towards recovery in this. And there's other guys, there's other girls, there's other jobs, there's other this. Um, listen, in those kind of moments, what you need is like a reassuring dad, right? And maybe you had one, maybe you didn't, but like God serves as like a, like, it's okay, buddy. You're going to be just fine, right? And you, what you need in those moments is, God, I just need you to tell me that everything's going to be okay. And that's fine, and we all need that. Like, it's, we, I want you to have a dad figure like that in your life, but that's not what this series is about. That would be a series where we'd focus on, like, Matthew chapter 6 and Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount talking about the lilies of the field. They don't try. They don't worry about it. Don't worry about your life. God knows that you need it, and he loves you and all that kind of stuff, right? That's fine. What I'm talking about are those moments in your life and those seasons that you might be going through or maybe have gone through it recently or are in one right now where it just doesn't feel like there's any live options. Like I literally, I, I'm, I'm struggling with hope in general. And divorce can definitely feel like that, especially if it's been like a really nasty one, it's been a really long time or, or a breakup where you just, you had so much high hopes and expectations on something. And then all of a sudden it's just the rug is swept out from under you and you go, I don't even know what to believe uh, anymore with this. And I'm struggling with like, I'm struggling with like taking steps forward with like showing up to work. I'm, I'm, I'm struggling with like just showing up in relationships uh, in general in this way. And, and we ask ourselves, why should I even entertain the idea of hope? It's, it's far easier sometimes to just wallow in despair and to be like, ah, whatever. Hope is a waste of energy. And we, I don't want to bypass uh, like all of this for like some sort of pseudo reality. That I'm, I'm, I'm really not in, invested in anything. And yet, um, it feels like a lot of times religion offers uh, a sense of hope in a, in a season of hopelessness. And this is why people will turn sometimes to religion, other, and, and not just religion, a lot of other things. But um, perhaps you come, you came to a church because you watched this video or somebody sent this to you because you're in the season of hopelessness. And religion has this way of being like, hey, all is not lost. There is definitely reason to kind of continue. And, and there, there's, there's, there's light at the end of the tunnel. Um, God has a plan for your life, et cetera, et cetera. All of these things kind of play out. And you expect that sort of 
from religion, whether it's like there's, you know, in Jesus's life, there's a pattern of life, death, and resurrection, and, and things die in life, and things are reborn, and sometimes things can't really come to life until um, something dies, like a, a seed is planted. Unless a seed is planted in the ground, it won't grow into something. Unless God closes a door, he won't open one over here, right? And there's, that can play out. Or it can be this idea of like this escapism, like this heaven balloon payment when you die, whatever. Like there's always, there's some of that kind of going on in all kinds of religion, and, and maybe you've never really put your finger on, on where you believe in terms of that spectrum of stuff. And you, you believe that there is hope in religion, but you've never really talked about it or like, like put words to it or thoughts to it in that way. So that's what we're doing with this series. And uh, in week one, I, I, I highlighted a, a part of Paul's message to a church in Colossae. Uh, he writes this letter to the Colossians, and he writes about this mystery of Christ in you, the hope of glory. And he, he's writing to them, encouraging them that the reason that you can have hope is because Christ in you, which is the hope of glory, he's associating something with that. And then uh, I, I mentioned um, that if you read this and you think to yourself, hey, okay, fine, what does that even mean? And then two, how does that play out in my actual day-to-day life and what do I do with that? Then you and I think alike, because as I read that, I, I can't just be like, that's fine, that feels flimsy to me. Um, I need a little bit more uh, than that. So my, my intention today and, and next week is to try and put a little bit of uh, work into that, to try and help guide a conversation about what that could potentially look like, at least uh, the way that Paul approaches it. And it's, it's confusing and it's tough and it's whatever, but um, you know, I think it's worth us trying to kind of attach something to this hope that it's not just pie in the sky when we die sort of thing, but something that affects and informs how we live and act out our presence in these moments and how you actually do things now. So I try to imagine the situation where you and I are at a coffee shop and, and uh, we're not talking about abstract examples of hopelessness, but you've presented to me your story with concrete examples of here's why my life sucks right now and I really need some hope um, because he left, she left, blah, blah, blah. And here's kind of what I would say in, in some conversations that would kind of take place and transpire in that way. And I would introduce the idea of deus ex machina, which I'm going to, I'm going to bring a word in. And if we were sitting across from a coffee shop, you would already know what this means, but I'll help out with everybody else with all of this, right? But, so this idea, let me, let me introduce this word to you, deus ex machina. The word translates to God uh, from the machine. And what it means is that in Greek plays, um, uh, at the end of a Greek play, when all of these kind of moving parts are still kind of unresolved, all these storylines in the plot are unresolved, they would then, as part of the play, lower a god from the crane in the center of the platform, like uh, this kind of a play. Like this is, the reason this is set up like this is because there's a play this weekend from Reed Mechanicals. And it, it would be as if a god would, would come down through the ceiling tiles and then be able to explain all of the different ways that resolves this story. There's this introduction of something to kind of bring things to a completion. Now, we know it as a plot device, or this is how it's used oftentimes in in language today, even though you've probably never said this. And by the way, I I did get grief for saying deuce about 20 times in church during first service. I get the irony there. We're all adults. We're going to move on, okay? Um, A plot device whereby a seemingly, you know I stole this from the internet too because I never say whereby. Um, A plot device whereby a seemingly unsolvable problem in a story is suddenly and abruptly resolved by an unexpected and unlikely occurrence. Um, 
it's almost as if there's like this situation that we're not exactly sure how this is, how in the world are they going to end this? It's the conclusion of a TV series. It's the whatevers. It's the conclusion of a movie. How are all these things going to get wrapped up? Wrapped up, And then something is introduced that was not a part of the whole story from the very beginning. And it's almost as if these boundaries are crossed. Like we're going to play by these rules. We're going to play by these rules. And then the writers, because they're just backed into a corner and they painted themselves into a corner, introduce a character that goes beyond the scope of the rules and they cheat and they close out the story. And it's like, I mean, I guess that's kind of fine, but that doesn't really, it doesn't really work. It's a cop-out is basically what this word means. When there's conflict, when there's something, when there's unresolved issues, and then something is brought in that cheats the system and finishes it, it's deus ex machina. Um, here's what, how uh, it plays out with Antiphanes was a Greek philosopher. He wrote this, when they don't know what to say and have completely given up on the play, just like a finger, they lift the machine and the spectators are satisfied. When we don't know what to say and we've given up on the play, and he's a good rhymer up to this point, and then he kind of struggles with his last part, but that's fine. Um, they lift a finger. They, they, they quit. They don't know what to do. And so then, and, and then it's like kind of cheaply resolved. I bring all this because we're going to go into what Paul says is a resolution for this, and it's going to feel, or it can feel, especially if you're in the midst of hopeless situations, don't worry, it's the mystery of Christ in you for the reason for your hope for glory. Christ's death, burial, and resurrection has a meaning and hope for you. And it's almost as if, yeah, you gave up a little bit. You didn't really know, Paul. You, you just... You just attached Jesus' resurrection as if that means something to me, and as, that, as if that presents any sort of hope to me. Paul, I'm going through real issues right now. <laughs> like, I, I came to church today because I, I'm really struggling with something. I, I, I have uh, real kids who are affected by this very real affair that my husband has decided to have, right? And I, I, need, I need answers. I need... I need more than just, well, don't worry. Christ died a long time ago, and that affects you somehow. How does a real strong belief that it happened, it being Jesus' death and resurrection, help me? What does it mean to me, and what does that even mean? So that's what we're going to be attempting to work through for a little bit today. There's a story in Acts chapter 15. Um, Acts is a book of, it's called the Acts of the Apostles. It's... Um, that's the full title of it. It's the actions of these guys who had followed Jesus for a long time, and then he's gone. He's off out of the picture now, and they were called to kind of carry on the mission of what he had started to do. Uh, and like any organization, when, they, when it was small, it was easy to control, and as it expanded, it gets you know, more difficult to control. And so they are dealing with what do we believe are core principles that the church is going to believe in, you know, a, a, as we expand. And there's going to be varying different opinions of this in different cultures, but like what's, what's the core belief of Christianity? What is Christianity defined by? They didn't have a Bible. This wouldn't come around for 400 years. Um, they didn't have um, like articles of incorporation or bylaws or anything that like modern day churches could sort of have. They had nothing. It was just like a bunch of people. And the fear was, can anybody just believe whatever they want to believe about this idea of Jesus? Or is there going to be standard belief systems attached to this thing? And so um, they had had uh, some, some people in a, in, a, in a neighboring town kind of come through and preach this alternative gospel that was like kind of close to Christianity, but not quite. So there's issues being resolved. 
And so they, they said basically, in order to become Christianity, you can become a Christian, but you must become a Jew first. And they added some different things to it. And, and, and verse, if you've ever attended East Lake 101, you know that one of the key verses for why we started this church comes from this story, this Jerusalem Council story, because James, the brother of Jesus, steps up in front of the crowd and says, it feels like every, like it, it feels like we're making this more complicated than it ought to be. I think that we should do, uh, we should not make it difficult for people who are turning to God. What if, what if we as a church made it our mission to not make it difficult? If that sounds ironic to you because every church you've ever been a part of has made it difficult for you, like, you're, glad you're here. Now here's things you need to do to measure up to it, right? Um, we have taken that as like a real challenge. How do we not make it difficult? How do we take 2,000-year-old scripture, interpret it in a way that actually means something for 2020? How do we um, take all of these different belief systems and make it actually relevant for, for real life? So they, anyways, this, this happens in this council, and then Paul and his uh, partner in ministry, partner in crime, Barnabas, are sent out with like this letter highlighting like just the basic core principles about what we believe. Don't let anybody else attach things to this. And then in verse uh, four of chapter 16, it says this, as they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions, and I put into words their dogma because that's literally the uh, Greek word used here, the dogma that had been reached by the apostles and the elders who were in Jerusalem. Now, dogma is an interesting word because it carries with it typically negative connotations in our day. These are the hardcore belief systems of what the church wants you to believe. This is, um, it shows up in even Macklemore's music, right? He says um, in this idea, or the song called Growing Up, uh, do yoga, he's trying to give advice to his kid. Do yoga, learn about karma, find God, but leave the dogma. Dogma unofficially has been all those things, established religion wants you to believe unquestioningly. And questioning dogma has always been considered one of the marks of intellectual maturity and competence, and yet, what we see it actually play out is this is the early church trying to identify commonly held, or at least for them, listen, these things have already been decided. These matters are settled. And I know there's something in every one of us sometimes, that, yeah, but yeah, are they though, right? Like we love deconstructing things. We love to be like, I know you believe this, but like, what about this? What if we... And, and, and it works to some levels, but then like we know that life kind of functions differently. Like the capital of, of France is Paris. It's always Paris, right? I looked it up because I was nervous that I would get it wrong in front of you. But I promise you that's what it is. And you can't be like, well, is it though? Yeah, No, it is. No, it definitely is. And we continue to operate. That is the dogma, the commonly held belief that has been passed down and passed down uh, to us. And you, 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 know, you go through the education process in school. You watch videos, apparently. And you, you see, uh, you learn from a civilization. This is, how, this is the dogma that we believe of, of how things kind of work and how things operate in this way. So that's dogma. Because I'm about to introduce it to you. And I, didn't want you to, I don't want it to be negative, right? Um, um, there, there can be way too many things packed into that category of dogma. And, and, you know, as a church, we try and kind of keep that as our, our smallest category of our beliefs. Um, we have a lot of opinions about things, but, um, very few dogmatic beliefs. And I, I think that that's true, but like dogma exists in real life. It's just, this is what we already know. This is what we, uh, the, the, uh, commonly affirmed knowledge for everybody. All right. 
That's important to know because in Corinthians, he's going to write a letter in chapter, uh, in chapter 15 of his letter to the Corinthian church where he's going to assume dogma, and I don't want it to be negative reaction to it. He's going to play into it, and there's going to be a, an approach that he takes to it. So 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 5. Now, I would remind you, brothers, and he's writing to this church in Corinth that's dealing with some stuff, and they're challenging his authority as, are you really like an apostle, and who are you to tell us what we can and can't do? And, and they, they, it's a wealthy city. They've got, um, uh, they're trying to figure out what it means to be Christian, but they, they, they're the, like this economic crossroads where there's, there's more wealth and, and power, and it's cosmopolitan, more cosmopolitan than most other places where the church is kind of advancing. And so they're struggling with... They're struggling with making sense of the, uh, the reality of Christianity in, in their context. Now, I'd remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Long roundabout way of saying, Paul's like, hey, listen, I'm about to present to you dogma. This is the stuff that we all agreed on. This is what we know. I didn't make this up. I pass this along to you in the same way that I receive this. And then here's what he says, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, which is uh, another word for Peter, uh, and then to the 12. And then it goes on, he says some other names and stuff like that. But here, here's, here's his point with this. And I bring this up every Easter. Like if you show up uh, to church on, on Easter Sunday in, in, in like two months, um, there's a good chance that 1 Corinthians chapter 15 shows up because I want to prove to you that this was not Paul making something up. This is not Paul, this is not Paul arguing for the resurrection of Jesus. This is not proof that it happened. He's saying this is the foundational belief of this. This is the dogma. This has been passed down to you. I'm not trying to convince you of this. You're already convinced of this. And if it doesn't, if it's not true and if you don't believe it, then that's fine. But this is what makes Christians Christian. Like, it's not like, well, I want to be a Christian, but just because of like the whole love piece of it. Like, I love that part of it. He's like, this is the foundation. You pull this card out, the whole thing collapses. And, 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 and this, this, this is important too, because I, I bring this up every Easter too. This is not something that they came up with a hundred years after Jesus left and after Christianity was going because we're like, man, we've just seen a decline in membership. What do we got to do to like spice things up around here? What if we came up with this idea that Jesus died? We all agree he died, but what if he like didn't stay dead? Wouldn't that be crazy? Wouldn't that be like intriguing? Wouldn't somebody be, you know, some people would be like, well, that now that's interesting. Now I could sign up for that, right? They didn't come up with this 100 years later. This is something that Paul is saying, we all agreed with this, right? This was, this was important. This would be the thing that when they got together, they didn't have a Bible verse. They didn't have a pastor go, all right, now everybody turn your Bibles to Mark chapter four. They had nothing like that. They would simply get together, affirm this early Christian creed, maybe sing a few songs together, share a meal together, and then go on and do life. That is what the early church look like? That was what it was every single week. Do we agree that this took place? How does this then affect our life? If he, if, if he conquered death, if he is clearly divine because of all of this, then, well, then what does that mean for his teachings and what he said and expected his followers to do in his name? How does that then translate for us? All right. This is important to understand. Paul isn't setting out to prove the resurrection of Jesus. He is reasserting the commonly held ground 
that he'll argue in their assertion, he's going to challenge them on something. You believe a certain thing, and yet you say you believe this. Here's what they think that they believe. Verse 12, but if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, which we have all agreed that we agree, not you guys, I'm just saying that he's saying this to them. How can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? All right. He, he's not challenging their belief on whether Jesus died or didn't die or, or was raised from the dead. He's saying some of you think it's too ridiculous to think that you might have life after this life. You're living as if all you have is now, and yet you say you believe that Jesus rose, but it's ridiculous to think that you yourself would have something beyond this. You live as if, and, and, and I get it, you un- I understand, this life is all you have, take full advantage of it. This, by the way, is completely a normal way of thinking through things. This is how most of us do this. We go, I have 60, 70, 80, my grandma was 100, I'll probably live to 100, whatever. We, we have a certain amount of time frame, and our goal is to take advantage of the time that we have. It's kind of like the phrase that shows up on The Bachelor. I only need to bring this up because I know you're watching it. When you get time with The Bachelor, it's so limited. Take full advantage of all conversations that you have with him, Okay. And we kind of translate that with life, too. We're like, listen, I can, believe, I can show up on Easter. I can be like, Jesus rose from the dead. That's fine. He's divine. I'm just a dude. So I, I think that when I die, that's the final word. And, and that's not sad. It's just, like, it's just reality. In fact, it's so much reality. That's pretty much what everybody in the Old Testament thought and lived in the way that they lived their life. Nobody in the Old Testament live their life with this idea of life beyond this life. For them, death was the final word. And their, their prayers, David's prayers in the Psalms was, you know, God, uh, I, uh, let me live this life in, this here, in the here and now. And, and they had this idea of Sheol. And this, like, for them, death was the end. And that t- makes total sense. They didn't have a picture of eternal life. And Paul is addressing them right now. And he's, about, he's trying to say, you believe this for Jesus, but you don't believe this for yourself. You keep living as if this life is all there is to this life. And that death and when loss occurs, it's a huge bummer. It causes destitution in your mind. You're hurt and it's, it's irre- irrecoverable because you've lost someone or something and this is all you have. Listen, if all you have is this life and somebody after 34 years of marriage says, you know what, I'm done and that's it, and they move on, and all you have is this life, and you only have a certain amount of time, then that does, that's like defeating. That's like, I don't know how you recover from that. You wasted my youth. You wasted my childbearing years. You wasted all of this stuff, and then it was so cheap to you that you just left it, and I'm, and I'm broken, and I, I don't have real hope. I find myself without, I feel like I have no live options anymore. Like, I'm gonna continue to live. I'm not, like, I'm not worried about that, but like the, uh, there's a quality of life in this that I just don't understand. And Paul is trying to say, listen, you deny that, your li- that, you deny that there is a future for you, and you keep thinking that you can differentiate and think it's okay that Jesus rose from the dead. He's divine, but for me... 
this is it. And Paul is trying to say, you don't live that way. Jesus talked about bringing in and ushering something brand new. A new heaven, a new earth, a new way of thinking something. Saying to you, what you're building right now in your life means something beyond the life, beyond this life. That there is life beyond this life. That death does not have the final word. And what you're building now in your spirit and in your personality and your soul and your individuality, it actually means something. So be careful with, what, with how you live and remain hopeful about what is to come. Why is there hope? For, for him, listen, love is stronger than hatred. Here's what Jesus' resurrection proves, that love is stronger than hatred. In the end, his accusers ascribed the loveliness and the graciousness of Jesus' life to the power of the devil. We don't understand how anybody could love this kind, love this much. We don't understand, we don't understand. It must be evil. It must be something bad. It must be something worse. If there had been no resurrection, it would have meant that human hatred in the end conquered the love of God. The resurrection is the triumph over all that hatred could do. It also means this, that life is stronger than death. If Jesus had died never to rise again, it would have proved that death could take the loveliest and best life that had ever lived and finally break it. And ultimately, what Jesus' death and resurrection does for the life of a believer is shows that death isn't the final word. And, if we, and he's like, you can't simply categorize it over there as that's fine for him as the divine. It means something for you too. It means that love conquers whatever evil in your life, that it sucks and he was selfish and she was this and whatever, all of this loss in your life that you could point to and be like, this is just evil in this world. That that's not the final word. That love conquers that, that life conquers death. That I can remain hopeful for something beyond this. Not pie in the sky like this do sex machina that I just, I, I do whatever and then God comes in at the end and it resolves completely or whatever. But I, but I live with this expectation that my life and how I live and how I choose to forgive and how I choose to love and how I choose to like experience anger but not hold on to it and have it turn into bitterness and how I choose to, to not live in fear. It's okay to be afraid, but not to live in fear. That I'm building something that is going to carry on beyond this. And I don't know what that means. And Paul would be the first one to be able to say that. In fact, later on in Thessalonians, he would attempt to kind of describe some of this, but he would ultimately be like, hey, we don't know. We, I don't know. I, it's not enough. I'm not in a position. I don't get paid enough to know what, how to define this exactly. But I am choosing to live my life with an understanding that death doesn't have the final word in my life. That hatred, that love can overcome hatred, that it will eventually win, and that life will overcome death. And it's not deus ex machina. It's not just appearing from nothing. He's going, this is central to the belief system of what we have as a church. This is what we believe. This is the thing that we believe that Jesus just wasn't a good person. We believe that he died, that he was buried, that he was resurrected, that he appeared to Paul or Peter, and then he appeared to the 12. That inspires us and brings us into a level of hope in the midst of certain hopelessness. And when there are no live options, we could say, 
it, do, it feels like death has won. It feels like evil wins. It feels like brokenness is irreparable. And yet I remain hopeful. And yet I hang on to the hope that I'm building something that matters, that I'm a part of building something that matters beyond this life. And then he finishes up and we'll, I'm gonna read it to you, but then we'll really expand on it next week in the finale of this thing. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead this is his, I mean, you can choose to believe or not believe, that's fine, but this is his assertion. And here's the consequence or the result of that. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The first fruits of those. That that, that that means something to those of us who will experience death. Not death as the final word, but something more. So how do we then live this out? Next week, we'll talk about the responsible exercise of hope is accepting the suffering that is involved in the contradiction of reality that we find ourselves in and setting out towards a promised future. How do you live then if you truly do believe that life, that death doesn't have the final say for me and that hope then shapes the way that I live? May we be the type of people who... uh, go through the 40, 50, 60 years, 70 years on this planet and love and raise kids and work and be good friends and be good employees with something in mind that says, I'm building something here. The reason that I can forgive 45 years of wasted life with this person, the reason that I can forgive this and move on is because what I'm becoming is something that does not end when my body goes in a hole in the ground. <laughs> that, and I don't know what it looks like. I don't, and we want to get there and we want to do that, but I don't know. But Paul says, live with the hope. Live with the hope that what you do matters. Let's pray. Father, our prayer is whatever kind of struggles and hopelessness thing that we're going through uh, that we don't you know, we, we, we don't just settle sometimes for just, well, re, you know, pseudo-reality or, or, or this. Um, we don't just settle for um, just the, the realism of this life or the finality of death or that's just how life works. Um, it's more than optimism. Uh, Paul would say it's not just loosely based optimism. It's pointing towards the fact that just Jesus ushered in something new, and we cling to the hope of that something new being true. And so as Christians, for those of us who call ourselves that, this is a, a learning experience. It's a growth experience. It's a, it's a not like I deserve this, but God help me understand what this means and how this shapes the way that I live my life. So give us wisdom in knowing what to do with what we've heard the curse to act on in your name. Amen.